Welcome, everybody, to episode 272 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson, and I'm not here this week with Corrie Perkin, who is still holidaying in Italy. When you last heard from Corrie, she was in Florence, and I was in Santa Margarita. Well, I'm back in Melbourne. Corrie's at Lake Garda, I think, at this point in time. We'll catch up with her in a week or so. But my guest, thanks to our show's producers, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store, is Nick McKenzie, well known to listeners of the Sounding Board podcast as the winks of journalism. I think Damien Barrett called him that. Nick McKenzie has a great story to tell. We're here to talk about the events of the last few months and Nick's book that has just been released, Crossing the Line. The Inside Story of Murder, Lies and a Fallen Hero. Nick, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So um, last time you were on the show, I think, you were, I think you've been our most popular guest. So you're back by popular demand and you're back because this is an incredibly timely situation. So um, just to recap, um, Nick in 2018, well, he's been writing a series of stories for several years alongside the de- equally more de- as decorated journalist Chris Masters about Australia's most senior war, most senior and most decorated war veteran Ben Robert Smith. Smith is a Victoria Cross medal, a Victoria Cross recipient, and a Medal of Medal of Gallery recipient. And the, to cut to the chase, he sued the Age, the Sydney Morning Herald, and the Canberra Times over a series of six stories, I believe, published in 2018 by Nick and Chris Masters. His case was bankrolled by the billionaire media owner, Kerry Stokes. And in 2020, he actually rejected a settlement settlement offer from Nine Media. So it was on um, June 1, I believe, that Federal Court Judge Anthony Basenko ruled that that, uh, Robert Smith, well, certainly that it was substantially true that Robert Smith had murdered Afghan prisoners and civilians and bullied peers. Um, the Australian um, civil defamation trial that I think cost around $25 million found that Robert Smith had committed war crimes, as I said, including murder in Afghanistan. And I urge you to read Nick's account of what he's been through, of what happened in Afghanistan, and just the story of, I think, a defamation trial that will definitely not only go down in Australian history, but international history. Nick, uh, congratulations. Yeah, sheer relief. Thank God we won. Uh, There's so much in this book to unpack, but um, when you found out that the ruling was going to be handed down on June 1, I think you went into an alleyway and dry retched. It was so many, um, really years of of waiting because we, our investigation began in 2017. We Ran the substantive stories in 2018, but never stopped reporting. So kept reporting uh, the, in the years afterwards. You didn't actually name Robert Smith early on, in, did you? Initially, no. First first story, we called him Leonardus. Um, and then we did actually name him in uh, mid-2018, which actually prompted him to sue. But then the legal process was was going from t- mid-2018 till, till this year in, in June. And um, there, I mean, there were so many delays because of COVID and because of other issues. National security laws applied to the case. The attorney general intervened, uh, and so it was just this life on hold, waiting, but always fighting because we. we and this is, um, and we tell this, uh, people don't get it, but you, you never ever put down your tools when you get sued. You got to keep finding evidence, 
And we kept finding evidence. And the, and the crazy thing about this story is he kept trying to conceal evidence and we kept digging, literally digging it up. So, you know, he, he famously buried some USBs in a pink children's lunchbox in his backyard. That his, his former wife's best friend went and dug up. D- dug up in, in their PJs, uh, made its way to the federal police, made its way to us, the, the contents of that lunchbox and made its way then to our court case. So we did, kept finding Can evidence. I just interrupt? There was one of those USBs. Did that have the, the evidence of the drinking from the prosthetic leg? That, that's right. And I, I, I'll never forget actually when I got my hands on the, on the USBs and thinking, you know, what's going to be on them and opening them up on, on my computer and just go, oh my God, here we have, the, the, our allegation was Ben Robert Smith executed a guy with a, a prosthetic leg, an Afghan prisoner who was detained by the SAS. Uh, then the leg was taken back to a, a makeshift bar and the blokes of the SAS used it as the biggest drinking vessel in Afghanistan. I mean, it sounds crazy. And this USB, one of the USBs that was buried had hundreds and hundreds of photos of, of the leg being used as a drinking vessel. And Ben Robert Smith, I mean, a couple of the photos thumbings up or big, big grins as, as people, um, swigged from the leg and he'd, he'd, his barrister had come to court and said, Oh, Mr. Robert Smith thinks the legs and its use as a drinking vessel is disgusting. And ha- uh, how dare they? And here we had the evidentiary proof of him, um, cheering it on, uh, which was a really important find for us. You've broken so many unbelievable stories. You're a 14 time Walkley award winner. I've worked with you myself. I know, I know how brilliant your career has been. And yet I cannot tell you how many times other so-called experts said to me, this is not going to go well for the age or the Sydney Morning Herald or the Canberra Times. This is not a case nine media can win because of A, B, C and D, not necessarily because the stories were wrong, but because of the situation in Australian law. And yet you did win. I just wonder about that sliding doors moment in 2020 when a settlement was offered and how you felt about that at the time. I, I remember being very deeply involved in that settlement decision. Uh, and you know, the, the, the company in, had to get my views, but I mean, I, I'm a small fish when it comes to that big commercial decision. And ultimately we did say to Ben Robert Smith, walk away, you keep your costs, we'll keep ours. If he'd done that, he'd be able to he would have been able to declare, no doubt about it, absolute victory. We would have been absolutely smashed. Uh, he could have gotten on with his life, but he, he didn't take it. And that says everything about Ben Robert Smith. Because Why did you agree to it though? You didn't really have a choice or? No, it was really, really hard for us to prove. We, we, we've done the extraordinary. We have proved war crimes, murder that took place in a foreign battlefield involving the most secretive and elite fighting force in, in Australia. We've got witnesses to break the code of silence, to come to court and to prove those murders with eyewitness testimony. That's an extraordinary undertaking. Very, very hard to do. But when we offered the settlement, we we knew if we were, our witnesses did not want to come to court for obvious reason. They don't want to go and testify against their brother soldier with the weight of Kerry Stokes's legal army against them. Um, Break that code of silence. Uh, We knew if, if we dragged them to court with subpoenas, which we would have to do, uh, they'd be re-traumatized for the court process. Uh, it was, it was just a lot easier to say to Ben Robert Smith, right, no one's going to, everyone's going to be damaged by this case. Uh, uh, even if, if we win or if you win, soldiers will pay a price because I have to testify. They'll be re-traumatized. The female witnesses, the, the women in Ben Robert Smith's life will be dragged to court. They'll, they'll be 
traumatised by a court process. I mean, nobody ever wins from defamation or, should I say, litigation. It's an ugly process. Stay out of the courts. So you go your way, we'll go ours. Um, you can you can spin it as a victory. We'll do our best to say that, you know, a settlement's done on a, on a commercial basis, but we'll avoid the trauma of the court case. And he said, get stuffed. Uh, and in fact, he said, in our, in our letter, I said to our, our lawyer at the time, uh, Make sure you put it in, in the letter that, that Nick and Chris want to go to court, as in at least have a shelf strength from us. The journos don't want to settle, and we're very eager to see this matter play out in trial. And, and Mark O'Brien, Ben Robert Smith's lawyer, uh, notoriously sort of aggressive uh, defamation litigator, we, we, we wrote a four-page settlement offer. He wrote back, I think it was three lines, basically saying, get stuffed. And by the way, Ben Robert Smith also wants to see this play out at trial. And it was game on from that point on, and we weren't we weren't going to walk away, and 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 the trial then was bearing down upon us. Thank God for COVID, though. Now I say that COVID's wreaked absolute havoc in people's lives, but for us it, it gave us a delay, it gave us months because the, the the trial was stopped, and that allowed us to get key witnesses to court who wouldn't have come to court otherwise, and that's what won us the case. So crossing the line pays a huge tribute to some very brave people many of whom were intimidated, according to this book and to your stories, by Ben Robert Smith. Um, I mean, the extraordinary tale of the travels he undertook and journeys he made around Australia and overseas to catch up with former soldiers, um, former allies, former colleagues, and to get stories straight, to ask them to testify for him, etc., etc. I think three witnesses were bankrolled too by Kerry Stokes to the tune of a quarter of a million dollars, and, and yet, um, there's a few incredibly brave women and women, I suppose, who were with you from the beginning. And I think last time Corrie and I interviewed you, you spoke about Sandy. And I wondered if you, I mean, we can't talk about everyone involved in this case, but what he actually did and what he achieved for you and for Australia, I guess, and for the military. Yeah, it's, um, it's Sandy, I mean, Sandy Dawson, our, our barrister, uh, who, who passed away. So, I mean, you mentioned his name and it, um, it, you know, it, it hits me, uh, because he was a, a larger than life, um, senior counsel. Uh, he's the sort of bloke you'd, you'd see in rake on the television. Um, you know, the colorful silk kerchief in his uh, top pocket, a uh, cl- real blue blood, um, Sydney guy. And, uh, I'm, and I'm a Melbourne boy, but you know, we, and if you could order up from a store, you know, blue blood, Sydney barrister, but with all the charm and grace and humility and, and style, he was good looking. He was everything. Uh, this was, this was your guy. And he was this rapport he had with our SAS soldiers. They liked him. Um, cause he was a, a wonderful advocate and a wonderful man. And he was winning our SAS soldiers. On, they, we, we had to make sure the soldiers connected to our legal team. And, and wanted to feel invested in our case, to come into court and to tell the truth and to back us up. Uh, and they, had, they and Sandy was winning them over, but Sandy also was was winning these great battles in the in the pre-trial hearings up against Arthur Moses, who's who's famous for a couple of things, including uh, being Gladys Berejiklian's boyfriend, uh, and uh, famous for being one of the the most sort of aggressive uh, senior counsel barristers in in Sydney. Um, and uh, the battles that he would have, uh, Sandy versus Arthur, were, we, and these battles meant something because we were fighting for evidence they were trying to conceal or trying to make sure we couldn't get. Anyhow, all of a sudden, we hear that Sandy's having some headaches in court, and no, no, no one really knows what that 
means it's a critical time in, in the case and, and we learn he's got brain cancer uh, and um, it's terminal. And, you know, it's that's, that's the moment you go, well, this doesn't matter. This court case, win, lose or draw, um, it really brought it home uh, because he was so young uh, and he had some um, uh, operations and then came to court as he sat, sat next to me in court at when Nick Owens SC took over um, and, and during the heart of the trial. And so he, I'd be asking him, are we winning? I was like the bloke from the castle, actually, have we won? Have we won? <laughs> and he'd be giving me his read on, so Ben Robert Smith testifying and, you know, he'd lean over and, and he was wearing a cap because he'd lost his hair and he was, he was as skinny as a, as a greyhound because of the, the, the treatment and he was dying. Um, but he still had this spark in his eye and he'd say, you know, Ben Robert Smith, he's just lying through his teeth here and have a look at this, Nick. And he, he'd be commentating the case and he'd be, he'd be enjoying it. And, and Nick Owens and our victory in, in court was really due to Sandy's extraordinary work as a, as a barrister, along with so many people came to the fore and stood up and, and were brave and, and the, the SAS soldiers who came to court, I still am in awe of what they did. So the, the day of the, the decision... Nick describes, and he describes it beautifully in his boogie, um, went for a run from Bondi to Bronte. You were staying in an Airbnb in Bondi, I think, for your time in Sydney. Um, had a swim in your running shorts, um, observed a rainbow over the surf and thought of um, your former mentor and great friend, Mickey Gordon, Michael Gordon, also a, a great friend of mine, the late, great Michael Gordon, who tragically died a few years ago. Um, I, I can't imagine the, the stress you've been under and how you felt at that moment, but maybe you can sort of try and take us through it. Yeah. I think living with that sort of anxiety for a long time, and I, I suffer from anxiety generally, and then this, and partly probably because of this case, but it's, it's hung over my head for a long time. Uh, and then it's building and building and building and building. Um, and there's not much you can do. You sort of stuck once that once the trial is over and Ben Robert Smith's and his witnesses have come and, uh, and we say they lied and that's what the judge has found, but they did, they were good liars. Ben Robert Smith is an amazing performer in court. I mean, the guy can captivate an audience and you know, I knew he was lying, but if you were, if you just walked into court as a stranger and watched Ben Robert Smith give evidence, you'd think, geez, this guy is extraordinary. You know, six foot six, he's good looking, articulate. He was emotional. He cried when you needed to cry. He was jaw out and, and powerful when you needed to have your jaw out and be powerful. He was, he was believable. And our witnesses were extraordinary, our, our, largely our, our SAS witnesses and very, very brave women who, who have their own remarkable stories who stood up in court and gave, I thought, extremely powerful evidence. But you don't know. You don't know whether you've won or lost. Because, and the judge never gave anything away. And so you, we waited almost a year for the judgment to come out. And in that year, I mean, every week I talked to Nick Owens, SC, our senior counsel or dean, our, our solicitor, have we won? Did we, did we win? Did we lose? Did we win? Did we lose? You'd go back and forward. And then the day of the judgment, you, you, you wake up early. And I, I did go for a run as the sun was rising. I got this crappy little place in, in Bondi, but you know, right on the beach. And there was this, um, you know, I'm not a superstitious person, but there was this double rainbow that just lit up the morning it was a beautiful little omen. I took a photo of it and sent it to the lawyers and I said, oh, this, this might feel good. Uh, and then, you know, leaping into the ocean and you're running in your running gear. Um, I just wanted to sort of cleanse and get, get some of that. I'm a surfer. I love it. Love the ocean and, and to a bit, a bit more good luck from, um, from the spirits out there as if that would make a difference. But anyhow, it's, uh, almost also just sort of passing the time 
And then you, you rock up to court and my lawyer afterwards said to me, Nick, were you um, making a funny noise as the judge was getting to the judgment, the core of it? I was like, mate, yes, I was hyperventilating. And I, and I was, I was just, cause you, and you didn't know. And even as the judge is speaking, it's very technical terms. You don't know actually whether you've, I mean, it sounds good. Have we won or lost? And it is like that scene from the castle. Um, uh, what do you say in the book? One murder, just one murder. Well, we needed, well, we needed one murder. We needed the judge to find, and in the end he found four. Uh, and that, that flood of relief at that moment when the judge is in his highly technical language saying, listen, Ben Robert Smith, according to the evidence put to this court has, has been involved in the murder of four Afghan detainees was extraordinary. I mean, just sitting there and th- you know, finally the truth has won. And I think that for me, there's a real sort of Hollywood side of this, which, and by that, I mean, uh, so often in life, the powerful rich people get away with it, you know, um, bad people rule the roost often you know, in politics and business and sport. And they're often, they're, they're powerful, arrogant, narcissistic, wealthy men. And Ben Robert Smith was all those things. And we see them get away with it over and over again. And to have, uh, the truth bust through in such a powerful way and to see justice play out, it, you know, it was amazing. Um, and, uh, and it did restore my faith in journalism and the justice system. So um, Nick is an incredibly generous journalist. We worked together at times on the Essendon drug scandal. That was a lonely time for me. And I tell you what, when Nick McKenzie and Richard Baker and others came on board, it made it a lot easier and largely because of their brilliant investigative work and largely because their reputations were just great to be a part of. You, You are a very generous journalist. You've always been very generous to me, but I remember towards, um, I think it was probably around 2016, 17, you said to me that you were perhaps going to step away to a degree. You were talking about going back to study, looking at other career ideas and and at the very least just going to three or four days a week, I, I think. What's happened to that situation? I, I did go back uh, and I was working full time and studying. I actually went back to study the law, uh, but then I got to know enough lawyers and see enough of a courtroom to know it's the last place I, I want to be. You know, in, in anyone's careers, you go through times where you think, well, what am I doing? Journalism's a hard slog. It's a, it's, I mean, it's, there's no great reward financially in it. Um, and you know, you're, you're only as good as your last story. Like after the Ben Robert Smith case, the judgment comes out, you know, the next day I'm back to work trying to dig up my next yarn. That's the, that's the game. Um, but I think as well, when you are part of something like the Ben Robert Smith story and you see journalism have a good impact, um, and, and you realize it's a privilege to be a journalist and we get led in, into the most amazing places and we see the most amazing things and I'll never fly business class. Uh, but I'll, I'll go and, and, and I'll get, I'll get to go to Kabul, Afghanistan and meet the, the family of Ali Jan, the man that Ben Robert Smith kicked off a cliff. And I'll, you know, the stories and, and the, the, the nooks of Australian life from, from footy to politics, to policing that you, you get access to, it's such a privilege. And I mean, I love journalism now and I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll be carried out in a box from the age, I think, because, and I'm, I've just feel lucky. And I think the big thing for me is realizing what matters um, to me. And, and one of the things that matters is, is, is you know, realizing the privilege of being a journalist and serving the public and, and doing so with all that energy and, and, um, and passion that I've got and, and just keeping doing that. Ali Jan, who we should say was not a soldier, an innocent civilian who just didn't come home one day because of what happened to him at the hands of the Australian military. And, and you, you paid tribute to him at the end of the case and 
you spoke very powerfully, both you and Chris, about not about yourselves at first, but trying to explain that, you know, this is not the story of the Australian military. There are wonderful people who serve our country. And, I mean, you were very strong to say that immediately, weren't you? And, I mean, I guess it has, it, it is a history-making decision, not only in a legal sense, but also in the sense of how war crimes are tried in this country. I mean, who knows what's going to happen, whether, whether in fact, Ben Robert Smith will be tried. Well, the great irony of his defamation case is he's much more likely now to be criminally charged than he was before he took the case because the evidence he's forced into the public domain and into the courtroom is will, will be and is being seized upon by war crimes investigators from the Office of the Special Investigator and the Federal Police. I think that's, a, that's one hell of an own goal. I think remembering that there are Af the Afghans who are affected by this, um, there are they're real people. It's very hard for Australians, I think, to, to connect with people far away and who don't look like us and who, who, um, it's, it's hard to make it tangible. And, uh, but for me, some of the most compassionate, um, ways of describing the victims or connecting with them came from blokes in the SAS itself. And one guy in particular, I got a really hard, tough veteran who, who fought in Afghanistan. Um, you know, he was a, he's a, he would not hesitate to, he would say, to, talk to me about the decisions he made to kill people. Uh, and you know, he was unrepentant about being a hard, hard, tough soldier um, and not hesitating to, to go, go in hard and to do his job uh, without mercy. Yet he also said to me, you know what, Nick, uh, Ali Jan, people have to remember he's like someone's dad popped round to the milk bar to get a loaf of bread and a bottle of milk. And his family was waiting and he never came home. And now Ali Jan's journey was longer. It was, it was a few hours and it was on a, a, via a donkey and he was there to get some mill, some flour and buy some shoes for his daughter. But yet he never came home. A civilian, a dad. Uh, and he has, uh, he made the kids. mistake of smiling. He, he smiled at Ben Robert Smith at the wrong time. And then he was led to the edge of a, of a cliff, handcuffed and kicked off a cliff. Uh, that's the way Ali Jan ended his life. Uh, and we've got to remember there's a humanity, there's a person at the end of this uh, story uh, a victim and, and there are kids right now in Afghanistan without a dad. And I think w when you hear an SAS soldier uh, recount that, it makes you proud to, to know that we have this SASR, the, the most elite revered regiment, because the vast bulk of people in there do believe in being tough, hard, elite soldiers, but also fighting fair. We're not the Taliban. Uh, we don't break the, we don't murder civilians. We don't murder detainees. That's what Australian soldiers do not do that. That's what sets the Aussie soldier apart from the jihadists they're fighting. And that we've got to keep that front of mind. So Brendan and I met Ben Robert Smith at an Anzac Day game, Collingwood Essendon game. Oh, it must've been 2015 or 16 with his then wife, Emma. And, um, we sat with him at an MCC committee room lunch. He was an incredible, he was um, at then, obviously, the Queensland boss of Channel 7. Incredibly impressive man. You know, they seem like a great couple. Like, there were other famous football people at the table. It was a really enjoyable lunch. And, you know, you, you describe a lot the stature of the man physically. I mean, he's big. You know, he's, you know, got a very impressive face. Um, he was great company. Spoke quite jovially about the Victoria Cross recipients' reunions in the UK because there are so few of them. It's quite a small party, and you know. And, and then the story started. I, I, I just um, and you speak about how impressive he was certainly early on, giving evidence. What what if you had to sort of assess 
the man, what made him, what led to this? And, and you speak about his family history. Where do you, what do you think about all of that? Well, p- part of the book, uh, in the research I undertook for the book, is understanding who is Ben Robert Smith. I mean, ultimately, uh, his story may not be as, as complicated as, as you could imagine. He's just, he's born to immense privilege. His dad's a, was a Supreme Court judge in WA. Uh, he came from, a, a, his mother came from an establishment um, stock. Uh, they were West Australian royalty best private schools. And I think he was, as, as an investigator who has observed him, um, for a long time said to me, um, he's always been a winner. And this is a man with everything at his feet who expected to never be questioned or scrutinized and who could get away with anything, uh, and do anything. Uh, and I think beneath that, there was an absolute, uh, strong strain of narcissism, uh, obviously He's a psychopath to have done what he's done in Afghanistan. It's, it's, it's narcissistic, psychopathic, and, uh, a very, very unpleasant, selfish. And I, I, in the end I described looking, so I sat a few meters from him in, in the trial, went for 101 days and, you know, you, we observe him and, and, uh, we, we had a, our own body language communication going on, but as the more and more witnesses, uh, brave men of the SAS came and testified about the real Ben Robert Smith. You know, he, he, I began to look at him and he's a, he's a huge bloke, but there's something of a small boy in there, a lost person who actually has no value system. And, uh, to, to see the emperor with no clothes revealed, um, and just, you know, when you hear, when the, when your heroes become real people and you see them for all their weaknesses and in, in, in Ben Robert Smith's case, all his awfulness. Um, it's a sad, and he's a sad person. Um, and he still, to this day, as I understand it, blames everyone else, but himself for the predicament that he's in. And the, and the extraordinary thing about this story is had he not sued us, it would have all gone away. So he's the one who's brought this onto himself, having murdered people in Afghanistan, innocent civilians. Uh, he, he then forced that into the public domain through his court case and had he just ignored our story, it would just would have been a footnote to his otherwise extremely impressive CV and be, um, he'd be a multimillionaire uh, national icon today. Uh, and no one would, would ever connect the name Ben Robert Smith with war crime. So he hasn't ruled out an appeal and he's still saying he won't apologize, that he has nothing to apologize for. What, what personal toll has this taken on you, Nick? It's taken a, a significant personal toll, but I mean, I, I felt comfortable when I'm asked that question because, you know, I've sat in court and watched very brave veterans of the SAS who fought for their country repeatedly in Afghanistan come and, and be morally courageous in Australia to stand up to Ben Robert Smith. And I've, I've watched them cry in the box. Uh, I've, I've, I've had one guy who testified, he called me after he testified, he was sobbing on the, on the, on the phone. Um, such was the trauma they endured through the court process because they were called by Ben Robert Smith's barristers, cowards and mentally unwell, uh, unwell. And, uh, they were absolutely monstered in the box and yet they withstood that, but it was still just shocking for them. The female witnesses were also monstered by Ben Robert Smith's barristers in the box. And it's a, it's a very lonely place to be giving evidence in the, in the federal court when you have an SC tearing you to shreds or trying to do that. So the trauma that they've gone through you know, is far greater than, than my um, journey through this. But yeah, it's, it's taken a pound of flesh and 
any journalist who lives uh, intense investigation and story over many years, uh, remember that vast parts of the media were smashing us. Uh, they wanted Ben Robert Smith to succeed. They wanted us to lose and they wanted to, uh, to, to propagate the myth, the Ben Robert Smith myth, yep. even when the evidence suggested otherwise. Why, why some media outlets and journalists did that is, should be best left for them to answer, but it's, you know, it, 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 we were under, under siege for a long, long time. Robert Smith with Kerry Stokes' backing wasn't just running a legal campaign, it was running a PR campaign very effectively. Uh, and that does, you know, it, you, you, it's, it, it upsets your sleep. It, uh, it upsets who you are as a person. It, it lessens your ability to commit to what's important in life, your family, et cetera. It takes a bit, it's a pound of flesh and you never get that back. Uh, but that's, that's sort of journalism as well. It's a hazard of the job. And, and I think every journalist in their career will have that one story that, that, um, you know, leaves a piece of them behind. Yes. I think that, um, for every journalist who, um, has been forced to settle when they didn't want to, who was given correct information, reported it, but then found it too difficult to get those sources to go to court for them, to stand up in court for them. And, and it's happened to me. I think um, you're more than our poster boy. You're our hero. So it, it was just, you know, it was just such a great victory for Australian journalism. I mean, how many times have I been told by our defamation lawyers, the system's broken, the system's broken. You know, anyone can sue you. And most media organisations, it just it's just easier to walk away, particularly when people are bordering on psychopathic because you just don't know what they're going to do. And it's a lot cheaper. Ben Robert Smith has, there's been some confusion recently in the news. He's told the court, yes, I'll pay the costs of the case, which is entirely reasonable. He's brought this case. We never wanted to, to go to court. He refused to settle when we offered him a number of times to settle. Uh, and our costs are, you know, $25 million thereabouts. So he's gone to court, I think last week and said, oh yes, I'll, I understand I have to pay the costs. But on the same day, I think he was seen going to a bankruptcy lawyer. So he's going to declare bankrupt. We won't get a dime from him. We'll have to be sure from Kerry Stokes and, and other parties. So it commercially makes a lot more sense for large companies to walk away because even if you win, you don't get your costs back. And that 25 odd million, that's a lot of journalists. That's a lot of journalism we could have been doing and, and not doing thanks to what Ben, ben Robert Smith's selfishness and, and narcissism. And it's a question for Kerry Stokes as well. He's ba He bankrolled this. He's a media proprietor who should care about freedom of the press, should care about investigative journalism rather than launching this years-long assault upon it. Uh, getting this case up, though, I mean, it, there, there was a moment, and I describe it in the book, sitting there, our most important witness, and we'd spent literally years trying to get him to court and uh, trying to, in the end, guerrilla warfare, having to subpoena him. And, and, uh, and even when we knew he was finally coming, having having known that he was at some times too mentally unwell to testify and our case would, would rise or fall potentially on this one witness. And then he walks into court, you know, the first time I've laid eyes on him and Ben Robert Smith is just daggers. His eyes are staring right at him and he's a few meters away from him. And these are two men who've, you know, fought in the mud together, uh, brother soldier versus brother soldier. And he, he, this, he strides into court and I mean, the courtroom was deathly silent and, I mean, I was, I mean, I was sweating. I couldn't write. My, my hand was cramping so much. And I had no idea whether he would get to the box and lie and cover up for Ben Robert Smith or get to the box and tell the truth. And our senior counsel, Nick Owens, was leading him through his testimony. He also had no idea. 
whether he'd lie or not. And, and step by step, we're getting to the cliff edge and Ali Jan, the Afghan prisoner is being led to the cliff edge. And this man's describing it, our witness. And there's that moment where finally, and what happened next and what happened next? And he describes Ben Robert Smith running up and kicking this man off the cliff. And as he describes that bang, you just, oh, man, you breathe out, you say, the truth is coming out. And it's that moment, the case turns on that one moment, but it could have very easily gone the other way. And Ben Robert Smith very almost got away with the biggest cover up in Australian, I'd say Australian history, very almost had this witness stuck to the lie, stuck to the cover up story. We were, we were done for. It's fascinating to read international accounts of this court victory achieved by nine media. I call it encompassing everything because of, because of what it means for international defamation, what it means for war crimes, what it means, you know, more locally for the SAS here in Australia. I mean, I, I just, the, the historic significance of what you've been through and what you've achieved is, is just so interesting and so fascinating. I urge people to read this book. I just want to touch briefly on Chris Masters. Um, I work with his brother, Roy. I've loved the books of their mother, Olga. They're a fascinating family. I mean, they've also decorated themselves. Um, there's, there's a script writer over in, um, in LA and, and obviously Sue Masters and all of her work in TV production. But what was it like having him by your side? And how was the dinner that night? Oh, he, listen, he's a, um, he's a living legend. Uh, I think he's 74 now and, and still like he, he's a born journalist, uh, and he just has a, a passion for it. I think he's got a, a very, very strong instinct, uh, he, he's sort of in a soul for what's right and wrong when it comes to journalism and, and you know, how people in public life that we scrutinize politicians, soldiers, et cetera, should conduct themselves. Uh, and you know, we've, we go back a long time. I was his researcher back at Four Corners in 2003. Uh, he, he went on to produce a story that I, I led at Four Corners as a reporter. Uh, and yeah, you know, we've, to have, to, to be by each other's sides, to have him there, um, 30 odd years older than me was a privilege and we needed each other during the court case because it's pretty lonely. Um, you don't, yeah, you know, we've won the case now and, uh, the company and, and um, the company was massively su supportive and, and I'm, I'm so blessed to have the age and the city morning Herald and, and nine behind me, but it's a lonely place. Um, uh, and when you win, you get a lot of accolades, but there was a, a lot of times we thought we we're going to lose and it, it's, you know, no one's patting you on the back then. You, all you're hearing is, you know, that the board's concerned and the chairman's asking questions and, and you're worried because you, you, you jo and to have Chris there was, was, uh, was wonderful. And he's, you know, he's a, he's a funny, uh, wonderful, complicated man. And he doesn't take himself too seriously. Lots of the time, uh, he's, he's, you know, he's got an honorary professorship, I think, or doctorship or something. And he calls himself the fat professor. Um, <laughs> he loves a fart joke. He's, uh, he's got a real down to earth part of him, but at his core, he's a really, uh, wonderful journalist who cares for, for facts and cares for journalism. And, uh, I don't think we could have done it uh, without, uh, each, each other. Um, and you know, I'll be forever grateful. The, the journal in me who has seen some wonderful times, but also seen some bleak times at the age, you know, redundancies, um, cutbacks, all, all the things that you and I have both seen. Uh, can you just tell me what it was like? I assume you walked back into the Sydney Morning Herald offices before you worked, walked back into the age offices because the, it came down in Sydney. What, what happened when you walked into the, did you walk in with? I, I walked in yeah, and there was, um, 
uh, all the journalists there and all lined up and just a massive round of applause blow, broke out and like the emotion just flooded through the room. And listen, I was, I was totally like swept away by that and, um, and I almost got a bit teary, uh, and it, because it matters to journalists, this case matters to journalists. And yeah, the age has been through some tough times as had the, as has the Sydney morning Herald, as has every newspaper in this country and media outlet. Uh, which is why you know, a, a win for journalism is a, is a great thing. But I can tell you now, the age is, is for me stronger than it's ever been. And I look at my, my colleagues, um, I went to, I mean, I'm only 42, but I'm one of the oldest people now in the newsroom. I'm getting around. I've been there for 16 odd years. The young journos there are so far, they're like, they're, they're like me, which is um, scary because no one wants to be like me, I think, but uh, they're fired up. They're passionate. They're energetic. They want to get the, the big yarn. They care about the ideals of journalism. They feel they, 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 they're driven by exposing, keeping politicians to account. And, you know, it's a, it's a much more, um, uh, diverse bunch of people. We, you know, we have Samaya, a, a Muslim, um, reporter who's an absolute superstar female. But and back when I joined the age, there was lots of old white blokes. And so to have different sorts of journalists now, with different experiences, reporting is wonderful, uh, and the passion is still there, and the, I mean the age is still pumping out, uh, I think, great journalism. Uh, and you know, the Ben Robert Smith case, I think, was was f for the age. It's what we stand for at the age. It's it's and it's what um, Les Kylan, uh stood for, and, and the great editors and and Graham Perkin standing up to power. Uh, standing up for the, the little person, the, the, the little guy uh, and holding the powerful, the wealthy to account and being a contrary voice and, and fighting for the truth. Uh, that's what the age is all about. Yeah. Well, you've been an inspiration to a lot of them. Well, one, we, I've sat with you more recently in the channel nine makeup room because you're doing a lot of work for 60 minutes and, and obviously more television now. How, but for a long time, you were an unknown person. Certainly your face was not known. How, how are you coping now with the lack of anonymity? I, I'm mostly, uh, like in public, people are terrific. Um, like I've had cars like, honking at me and people yelling out, well done, well done on the court case. Or, you know, it's been, the, the Ben Robert Smith case has been a huge public um, topic of fascination and everyone's got an opinion. And people were so fascinated because Robert Smith's conduct was so wild. I mean, this is a bloke who admitted in court with a straight face. Yeah, sure. I pulled petrol on my laptops and set them on fire, but I wasn't trying to destroy evidence. Yeah. I buried some USBs in the backyard. Normal, normal behavior. Yes. I had burner phones. Uh, but what's the big deal about having six or seven burner phones? No, no biggie. Uh, people were like, who is Ben? This is a crazy story. What? how can this man be, be, be engaging in such wild conduct and, and the, the different, uh, all the twists and turns of his personal life that played out in court as traumatic and tough as they were to, to listen and, and observe people also so, so fascinated. So the, you know, the public wants to engage and, and, and mostly it's extremely positive. I cop a lot of, uh, shit online. So people emailing me, um, uh, lots of it's wonderful, but there is lots of people who are angry. Um, they don't want the Ben Robert Smith war hero myth to be a myth, uh, that, excuse me, that they want it to be truth. They don't want it to be exposed as a myth. They prefer to believe in the war hero myth than the, the grim truth. And so you get lots of, um, death threats and, and nasty emails, uh, online. Um, but you know, that's their keyboard warriors. Um, and I don't let it worry me too much. And what I do love is I, I had an SAS widow come up to me at a event and we embraced, you know, and she said, thank you. I've had veterans who fought in Iraq, Afghanistan, Vietnam, 
contact me and say, thank you so much. Because as a soldier, I stand up for, for lawful conduct. That's what I fought for. That's who I am as an Aussie soldier. And I'd rather the grim truth, uh, than a flimsy fake, um, fantasy because as soldiers, we fight for a free press. We fight for democracy. That's, that's why we went to war in Afghanistan. Uh, and I'll listen to those vets over the um, keyboard worries any day of the week. So I've been talking to Australia's most decorated journalist, Nick McKenzie, um, about one of Australia's most decorated soldiers, Ben Robert Smith, and his extraordinary story. In recent years, I've seen some great films about journalism, Spotlight, and She Said, and The Post. I'm sure this will be a movie one day. And um, I urge everyone to read Crossing the Line, Nick McKenzie's book that was clearly ready to go, or almost ready to go. Um, the last chapter wasn't, and um, I'm so glad it ended the way it did for you. Nick, you're going to stick around for the rest of the podcast after we head to the cocktail cabinet with Miles Thompson for Prince Wine Store. So welcome, Miles Thompson. Lovely to see you again from Prince Wine Store. You've come in um, on my instruction to discuss, <laughs> because I'm pretty obsessed at the moment, by Italian wines. Why is that? Well, I've just been in Italy. <laughs> Corrie's still there. She sends her regards. Um, you know, I had four days in Lake Como, a couple of days in beautiful Santa Margarita, and mm. then... Um, Como's beautiful. Oh, just stunning. And then four days in Florence, where we had also some beautiful, beautiful Tuscan wines. Yes. And um, actually, Corrie and I went on a hike to um, a beautiful, um, well, not really a hilltop village, but a, 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 yeah, well, it was up a big hill anyway. Um, What's a hill Ch there? Chicheri was the walk we did with a wonderful guide, Marco. Long story there. We'll talk about another time. But um, we ended up in Fiesole and um, had a beautiful lunch under a grapevine. So you're so going to good. tell us, you're going to give us a, an, at least one Italian white recommendation yeah, to kick us Italian off. Yeah, Italian whites and, and I've got a, a Tuscan because I knew you'd been in Tuscany, so a Tuscan red as well. So Go ahead. Yeah, so yeah, Tuscan white, sort of talk, I guess we were discussing or, or wanting to talk about great Tuscan whites, uh, sorry, great Italian whites. I, I always think of Italy as a bit of a red country. Um, it certainly has a lot of great whites and I think really sort of the best whites that you're looking for come from the Northeast and often from sort of aromatic varieties and blends in particular, um, some really wonderful, amazing blends of, you know, Sauvignon, Tramina, Riesling, sometimes Chardonnay, and then other sort of great names. Vidicchio was one we yeah, were. Yeah, Vidicchio is more sort of down, down sort of South Marche in that sort of region. Mm -hmm. And then in the North, you sort of see, because it starts to border Slovenia and Switzerland and Germany. So you see some of those aromatic varietals that you see there, Pinot Bianco and things like that. So I think that northeastern part, and there's obviously Suave in, um, in, in where you were up in, in um, Lake Como in that region too. So those, I think, are some of the great wines. Maybe down south and you're sort of talking about Italy and certainly Campania, Fiano and things like that. Um, and then there are some great sort of versions of Vidicchio and and, and throughout the sort of, throughout sort of Italy. But I think those Northeastern parts, maybe part of the South too, are sort of really where the best stuff comes from. Um, a lot of, a lot of Italian whites, uh, can be quite neutral, but often can be quite textural, often have like a bitter, a bitter sort of textural phenolic sort of thing going on, which makes them really great with food. And when you're sort of talking about Italian wines in general and European wines in general, I think, uh, Europeans always eat and drink together. You know, that's just what they do. So the wines are sort of built 
around going with food. So sometimes on their own, they can maybe there be elements that you don't enjoy, but once you have it with a bit of food, some of those things like tannin and acidity and these bitter things sort of soften out and bring out the fruit. And because that's really sort of typical to be eating and drinking at the same time. So you see them sort of build their wines around having them with food. So maybe sometimes a little different to sort of the really sort of fruit driven styles that we see here in Australia and, you know, other parts like the US and New Zealand and things like that. We found we drank really well and we, you don't, you, well, I don't know whether it's because you're trapped. You don't mm. seem to drink, Italians don't drink as much as Australians or in the volume. No, of course not. But they drink more with every meal. Yeah, they'll drink at lunch. They'll, they'll, yep. they'll happily drink at dinner. It's always a, a glass or something. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. And, Very and the different cost, attitude to, to alcohol that, that we have, I think. Yeah, prob- a better one, I think. <laughs> I think so. So what can you I recommend, Miles? Yeah, so I've, I've got one from a producer called Il Carpino, which is a, 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 the supplier that brings in and has been trying to for years bring it in. Very, very small production up in that sort of northeastern part of, of Italy. He has a couple of ranges. One's the sort of top-end range, which is very textural, sees a lot of skin contact, almost that sort of orange wine type thing. And this is the Vigna Runk range, which is more, which is a bit... M- not as expensive and is a little more sort of like traditionally made. Um, and I chose the Robola Gialla, which is a native varietal, really old varietal from that part of Italy as well. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it just has this, I, I love Robola. It's got this lovely kind of like citrus and sort of beeswax kind of floral element to it. That's really sort of enticing sort of mid-weight style wine, but yeah, it has these lovely sort of citrus pithy sort of notes to it, a little bit of a sort of herbaceous character and this lovely kind of like honeyed sort of beeswax element that you get both on the nose and then the palate. It's kind of like medium bodied, quite fresh sort of acidity and has these lovely sort of lovely like clean sort of stone fruit and sort of apple tree fruit sort of notes in it as well. Usually you can see them oaked and unoaked, just depends on the producer. But this is a really sort of, I think, classic example of, of this varietal. And uh, yes, I think uh, $56 on the shelf. At Prince Wine Store? At Prince Wine Store. I'm and, not advertising for anyone else. And you'll get your um, your listener <laughs> discount, podcast discount, if you um, mention Don't Shoot in the Messenger or if you're buying online, M-E-S-S is that's the promo right. code, $56. Yeah. And that's from Il Carpino. For Il Carpino, yeah, up in Ra- that northeast. Rabola Giara. Rabola Giala. Giala. Mm. We had a funny experience um, at a gorgeous little wine bar where we had a lovely light dinner mm. on my last night, I think, in Florence. And... Everywhere you're going in Europe at the moment, it, you know, it's pretty hot. And certainly mm. in Greece, you'd order your half litre or a litre of wine for a, a large, larger group. And you'd always ask for ice on the side. And at this wine bar, we asked for some ice because they don't serve the wine super cold. Yeah. And um, they looked at us and they said, that's to go with your sparkling water. I'm not going to do the Italian accent or speak in Italian, of course. And we said, yes, yes, yes. Like they just looked absolutely horrified that we'd be putting white, putting white, uh, ice blocks into our white wine, which it, sometimes on really hot nights, you yeah. just have no choice. Sounds bad, but there you are. Oh, look, I've, I've done it. Yeah. Yeah. We, th- this, this particular place, they bought out an ice bucket just to chill our wine a bit yeah. more because it was such a hot night, but you're sitting opposite the pity palace drinking this fabulous white wine. I Absolutely. mean, what's not to like? Well, I think last time we were there with, with work, I went on the work trip there and yes, we complained a bit about the, 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 the beer temperatures. Oh, you can't have, not very can't cold. have beer that's not super very cold. Very frustrating. 
So that, yeah, no, no, completely uh, get that. A cold beer after a long day. Terrible biking. when you're in Italy. I can tell you about. No, well, that's I what know. you really want. That's the thing. So we we struggled a bit with it. We asked we asked a few of the ones you know, places that Michael, the owner, you know, he knew some people, and we sort of said, what's like, what is the deal? We actually stayed at one place where they had a beautiful little mini sort of on tap sort of beer thing. And it's the only place that I've had really like good cold beer, beautiful chilled beer. They're like, yeah, yeah, no, we get it. We're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> In Amsterdam last week, it, there's a, I think my son was explaining it. You buy cold beer. I think you, there's a one euro tax on it being chilled. And it's oh, cheaper right. if you buy it unchilled. Extraordinary. Oh, my gosh. Extraordinary. It's been pretty hot That's over crazy. there too. I get it with some of the Belgian beers because they're quite high alcohol and you sort of need to serve them a bit warmer than normal, but just, you know, straight up. After hike beers, they need to be cold. Sorry. What else can you recommend? <laughs> That's right. What else can you recommend? So to Tuscany, because I mean, how can you go past Tuscany? I was just sort of thinking on the way. It's just such a, uh, it's just so relaxing when you get to Tuscany. The rolling hills, it's beautiful and green. They're like know, the most beautiful patchwork quilt, aren't they? Amazing. And just a beautiful combination of vines and farms and woodland and Olive groves. Olive groves. Yeah, it's really beautiful. I think, I think you know, you don't often see that everywhere. But anyway. But yeah, so Tuscan, Tuscan Hills, a uh, producer called La Cinciole, and this is their wine called Cincio Rosso, and it's a blend of mainly Sangiovese, and then it's got a little bit of Merlot and a little bit of Syrah in it as well. Oh. So Sangiovese can be a little bit on the leaner side of things. It's got some quite sort of fresh acidity and some... Um, quite bitey tannins, which make it perfect again for food, particularly, you know, bistecca or something like that works really well. That proteins in meat sort of break down the, the acid and the tannin and soften it, which is why a lot of those Italian wines tend to have that in it. Uh, you know, they have those acid and tannins in them. Um, but this is blended with a little bit of, bit of Merlot and Syrah and it just gives it this lovely plummy, soft sort of fleshy fruit, this lovely sort of sweet mid palate. And you still get all that lovely fresh kind of zing and zip from the kind of like sour cherry thing that you get from Sangiovese. So a really nice sort of modern styled um, Tuscan wine. So it's Tuscan rather than it's made in Chianti, but it's a, it's a Tuscan wine because it has those um, <clears throat> has the Merlot and Syrah in it. Just gives it a more of a kind of modern bent, but you know still still very much Tuscan. You can really sort of tell where it's from. La Cinciole. La Cinciole is the producer, and it's the Cinciarosso, which is the which is the wine. They make Chianti and Reserva and all the sort of standard Chianti things, and this is their little sort of modern sort of take on on these modern sort of super Tuscan blends or Tuscan blends. Really well done, beautiful wines. It sounds Lovely beautiful. couple too. With um with a a, a blend involving um Sangiovese, so yeah. we can buy that at Prince. Absolutely yep. for. And that is, uh, what is that one? $36, I think. Oh, Miles, that's sure. fantastic. Yeah, really nice. And and just, and if you haven't had a lot of Italian wines, particularly Chianti, you know, they can be, you know, if, you, if you're used to Australian wines, you know, with it, with European wines, so they sometimes maybe lack a bit of the fruit that we're sort of used to. This is a nice way to sort of get into it because that, that extra sort of Syrah Merlot just like softening out that Sangiovese. So if you haven't tried Tuscan wines, this might be a nice way to start. When are you planning your next trip to Italy? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't get to go this year. <laughs> Gab, Gab went. I didn't. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. My wife's German, so um, she's actually about to head over there. So we're talking about maybe next year going over to see the family again and taking some time off. And I desperately want to go back to Italy. Yeah, there's um, there's a lot to like, and it's so a big. Lot. I mean, I don't think I'll ever get to see all of no. it. But um, every I'd hadn't been to Florence since mid eighty. I mean, I've been around that area and mm. gone through it, but I'd been there with a great friend, um, 
in my in the mid eighties, and I hadn't been back since. And look, it's not too crowded. It's absolutely beautiful. We That's even beautiful. we were even bailed up by a couple of lovely podcast fans. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, we how were. Funny. Yeah, I know who'd um, who'd heard on the podcast that we were there. And um, like Hilarious. everyone, they've been buying Prince Wine Store wines, or they were until they were over on the other side of the world. And love your recommendations. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, what a fun, what a fun city. What a great country. So there's a great white recommendation and a great red recommendation, both from Italy, thanks to Miles. Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store. Just remember, www.princewinestore.com.au or in-store for your 10% listener discount. And for interstate podcasters, Prince Wine Store can deliver Australia-wide. Thanks, Miles, for coming in. Thank you. Now for Red Energy, it is time for Books, Screen and Food, BSF. I've come up with a recipe, Nick, but you are going to sing for your supper and you're going to recommend a book for us. We've already talked about crossing the line. Can you tell us about anything else you've managed to have time to read lately? I just, I've just read um, Mayflies, uh, which is the most uh, beautiful book. It's one of my favourite books too. Yeah, I, th- I think because um, like I'm a child of the 80s. And it was set up a bit before then, um, with the, so it's a couple of best mates. Um, the scene at the Manchester Music Festival took me back to, and well, you wouldn't have been there in the eighties, but I was. Go but, on. But even though, uh, so it's, it's a bit before my time, but I still am aware of the music. So a couple of best mates, um, they're, you know, experiencing their first uh, live gigs together as, you know, on the, on the, the teen rite of, rite of passage adventure, but any, anyone who has you know, been a, it's that time of teenage, uh, hood to early twenties and you, you're going to your first gigs and you, you know, you get, you, you're doing all the things you shouldn't be doing. And you, it's that sense of, of freedom and I'm my own person, uh, and, and capturing that, but also then it leaps into adulthood and all the challenges of, of cancer and, and, and life. Um, and it does it so very well. And I, I wondered whether as a, as a bloke, I think I loved it as, cause it's, it's a story about men. Um, is it by Dennis? I'm trying to remember the name uh, of the author. It's Andrew. It's, Andrew O'Hagan. Yes. Um, who's yep. a wonderful, wonderful writer. Uh, but I think women would really love, uh, it, it as well because there are some, some great female characters, but it, it is, it's a, if you love you, if you love music and if you, if you, I mean, any, anyone would love that book. I think it's, and it's just told, it's beautifully written and, uh, and very, very emotional. Yeah. A great book about family. And it's not only about euthanasia, but it's one of the best stories about euthanasia that I think I've ever read. Yeah. Dying with courage. Um, but more than that, for me, it's about friendship. It's about, yep. and I'm, uh, you know, one of the best blessings in my life is to have mates that I've, I've you know, I've got mates that I've known since I was in, in primary school. I mean, there's one like I still surf with, who's, I'm known since grade two, you know, and now I'm 42. And to have those long friendships, I mean, as a man or a woman, um, to, to, if you're lucky enough to have someone in your life for 40 years or, or, or longer, and you've done all those things together, you know, first kiss, first drunk, first this, first that, uh, and, and it, 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 it captures that beautiful, those love stories we have with our best mates so, so well. Uh, and it makes, I think you reflect on your own life. My niece, um, just a few weeks ago, went up to Manchester for a music festival and I said, you have to read this book because it's such a brilliant account of going completely insane over a weekend. Oh, great recommendation. Now, Scream? 
I'm a fan of slow horses and series, uh, the most recent series has come out and, uh, uh, it's like, yeah, it's just, Is that the third series? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's a spy drama. Um, um, yes. And, uh, it's set in MI5, a sort of washed up bunch of, uh, of, of spooks doing, um, some pretty uh, interesting spy work, but there's a real, um, it's, it's black comedy. It's dark. There's, it's, it's dramatic. There's action. Uh, but there's just amazing characters in, in there. It's, it's really worth a watch and succession as well. I mean, yeah, you can't go past succession. I still, I just haven't done succession, but slow horses. I haven't seen the third series. Kristen Scott Thomas as the sort of protagonist from head office is absolutely He's, brilliant. Yeah. It's the, uh, the, the who plays this, the main spook. I've forgotten his name, the famous, um, uh, Gary, uh, Gary Oldman. Yes. And he was just, he's so good as the washed up drunk. Uh, yeah. but with a, with a really, really sharp mind. Great, great watching. Yeah, no, that, that's a great recommendation. Well, I won't take you all through the entire recipe, but it will appear on the show notes. I was back on footy classified this week and you pick up some great tips in the channel nine makeup room and Yuta, who not only made me look half presentable for Footy Classified on Monday night, passed on her recipe for pumpkin lasagna with burnt butter and sage. This is one of the most fabulous recipes. It involves ricotta, creme fraiche, although you can use sour cream, parmesan, layers of baby spinach, Kent pumpkin, and you just buy the commercial lasagna sheets, um, apple cider vinegars involved, fresh mozzarella, I urge you to cook this recipe. It's brilliant if you're a vegetarian. It's brilliant if you want a nice, cosy dinner. That is Book, Screen and Food with Nick McKenzie. And thanks to Red Energy, Nick. Before I let you go, I'm just going to, rather than you and I swap six quick questions, I'm going to ask you six quick questions. Um, you mentioned surfing and you mentioned, I think, um, surfing from, you know, with, with friends from an early age. Where's your favourite international surf destination? Where should we go? Uh, yeah, so you can't go past Indo and, um, there's lots of spots off the, uh, if you're exploring you know, off the coast of Sumatra, uh, et cetera. Um, but I mean, <laughs> favorite spot is, is, uh, Costa Rica to surf. I remember when you went to Costa Rica, that sounded absolutely brilliant. Uh, magical. Yeah. You can like, you stay in a jungle, your own little jungle with your own surf break in front and not a soul in sight. Are you going to go on a holiday anytime soon? August. I'm off surfing, so I can't wait. Oh, okay. Should the ABC be nationalising its Sunday Bulletin? I think local news is what it's all about. Uh, and what, people don't get it. I, I know quick questions, but I'm going to give you a long answer. No, that's all right. Over the age, it services Melbourne and Victoria. Uh, and the ABC should, uh, nationalising is dangerous, I think, because, you know, even in Melbourne, if you, I live in Preston, I don't, uh, you know, there's, there's a difference between there's over the river, there's a different vibe over the river. No disrespect to those who live over the river. But my point being, local is everything. We get it. We, and you want to know that your local journos get what's important to you locally. So sure, national topics are massively important, but um, let's keep it local, ABC. I can't imagine how they do the Sunday night footy coverage between well, Sydney well, and Precisely, Melbourne. yeah. And yeah, this is the thing, and, and people don't, I think, I think the Guardian, I really respect, um, out there, but it doesn't, it's not going to do footy like the age or the Herald Sun. Uh, let's be honest. Um, uh, and local, like sport is why 
is the great example is why you need local outlets that service local audiences, Melbourne, Victoria, because footy's footy. Um, and footy to me, footy's footy to a Melbourneian is different to footy's footy to someone who lives up in Manly. So it's, uh, uh, you know, you keep it local. Yep. Good answer. Um, now speaking of footy and this, I guess this can't be a quick answer, but you would have followed the coverage of the Hawthorne racism scandal to coin a, a name for it. Do you have a view on, on how that story was broken and covered and where it might go? A very, very complicated uh, issue. It was very difficult to give an answer without getting your head lopped off by somebody. Uh, I think it touched on a, a really major issue, which is racism in, in footy, which is massive, I think. Um, there is institutional racism and it's got to be confronted. I also think, though, that it's there was a lack of due process uh, in the journalism and in the handling, the process by the, the footy club, the, by the Hawks and, and by the AFL. And, and it's just a train wreck of people who now feel like they haven't had their stories told, heard, and haven't had justice on all sides. And that's a, that's a real pity. I guess the silver lining is we are confronting racism. That's definitely a big, a big problem. And maybe sometimes you've got to have a mucky process in a mucky environment to, to force a debate about something we, we should be talking about, which is how we've dealt with and treated Indigenous players and even to this day how they're, how they're being treated and dealt with today. Now, on a lighter note, this is a bloke who memorably asked me in late 2019 whether I'd been to the grand final that year. <laughs> I still can't get over that. Yes, well, I, I do cover football and I am a Richmond supporter. Um <laughs> Where were you on grand final day last year? And were you one of those Chris Scott naysayers until then? I'm a Cats fan. So, uh, yeah. And yeah, I was watching just at a, at a, at a mate's house. Um, oh, you didn't go? No, no, I couldn't get a bloody ticket. They're like, everyone thinks if you're a journo, you can get a, you know, grand final ticket. They're like Tay-Tay tickets. <laughs> rare as a hen's teeth. Uh, I've got to say, I have a little footy story of recent, though, I, I had an interview on 3RW the, the other day and um, it turns out that Jimmy Bartell was going to be a stand-in host and I was going to do it from, from home, but, um, and I live in Preston, so it's a good 25 minutes to get in to the studio if you wanted to get in there. But it was, I was having a cup of tea at home, ready to go, and my son, who's nine years old, what are you doing, Dad? I said, I'm about to be interviewed by Jimmy Bartell. He says, I want to meet him. So we, we get in the car, I, I made it in. 12 and a half minutes. <laughs> I sped all the way. We literally run up Collins Street. Casper's my son. He was, he was trying to keep up with me. Yeah, obviously he's full of talk about Jimmy Bartell. He walked into the studio and he's a mute because Jimmy Bartell's there. Uh, but then I, I'm a mute because I realized it's so weird. Jimmy Bartell is a hero. I'm older than him, yet he's a hero of mine. And I was gushing like a fan. I'm so pleased <laughs> to meet you. Anyway, it was a great, great kick meeting Jimmy Bartell. And, and we, then we watched the 2011 Granny together, me and Casper. Uh, and, uh, and what a legend and what a lovely bloke. Yeah, he is. He is a lovely bloke. In fact, it brings me to my fifth question and he's got it as well. Why, how do you look so young? What's the secret? Have people must have asked you this before? I get asked, yeah. I mean, I, I've spent the vast part of my career being treated as the intern or work <laughs> experience kid. Literally, like I've been on, I've been a lead recorder, uh, lead reporter at Four Corners and it rock into an uh, interview at Washington, D.C. with the, I think it was like the Ugandan central bank governor or something. And he was just talking to the cameraman because uh, I realized he thinks the cameraman's the journalist. Uh, and then he was giving me things like, can you hold my bag and can you get me a coffee? 
and he thought I was just in, the intern. Um, <laughs> he was shocked to, to realize that I was there to interview him. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I don't feel young. I feel old. My, my, uh, my knees don't feel young. And, um, yeah, I'm sure I'm going to be like the bloke from uh, Indiana Jones where <laughs> I'm going to drink from the, uh, it's, it, overnight, it's just going to, I'll, I'll become decrepit, I'm sure. So you can't recommend a special diet or moisturizer or anything. It's just the way you are. Red wine, red wine. <laughs> The, the sixth one comes, well, it doesn't really come from Corrie, um, but it's inspired by Corrie. He loved your answer the other day. I think it was one of the interviews you did, and uh, the question was, what is the greatest impediment to your writing or to the writing process? And you said the internet. Please explain. Oh, he loved that answer. I think it's my, um, like a, anyone who spends their life in the news game, you're always looking at your phone for the news. If you've got a bit of ADHD, which I probably do have, you, you're always distracted on your phone. So you know, I get as much more done when I'm on a plane and I'm, you know, I'm flying economy class. I'm stuck between two people on either side. I've got no internet and the laptop's open and I'm just going to just get into it and write. And I wrote the book. I went down to, I was cat sitting somebody. I regret cat sitting. Um, uh, but for two weeks they asked me to cat sit their place in Phillip Island and there was no internet. And I wrote, um, a fair bit of the book, just you know, 12 hours a day, um, uh, just stopping to curse the cat every now and then. Uh, and well, they don't take up much time, cats. You don't have oh, to this walk cat was, or... This cat was literally, I was told beforehand it's schizophrenic and I thought that was a, <laughs> a joke. Um, but no, I, we had some mental issues, the cat. <laughs> well, Crossing the Line by Nick McKenzie is out in an, every bookstore around Australia. I'm sure it's going to sell brilliantly. Do you think there will be a film? Uh, listen, it's a great story. It's the most m wonderful, crazy interesting story, an important story I've worked on in 21 years as a reporter. So I hope there is a, a film or a TV show because I just want people to, to learn about it. And I want the story to, to recognize the heroes of the story, which is the SAS soldiers who stood up for the, the truth and stood up for justice and can make us all very proud of our armed services. Do you plan to ever go back to Afghanistan or Darwin specifically? I'd love to do that, but very hard with the Taliban ruling the roost now. Um, I actually would love uh, to tell the story of Dusty Miller in the book, uh, uh, SAS medic who was party to a war crime and then who sought forgiveness uh, from, from the sons of a man who was most likely murdered. And I'd love to connect Dusty face to face with those boys that he met. Um, he's met them online, but uh, so yeah, maybe one day. And he's the man you spoke about during the last time you visited this podcast. Nick McKenzie, thank you very much for joining me on Don't Shoot the Messenger. Thanks for the chance. And that was Don't Shoot the Messenger. Thank you again to our show sponsors, Red Energy, Australia's most trusted energy providers by Canstar, three times. Call 131806 for real Aussie energy. Thanks to Miles from Prince Wine Store. And thank you to our special, special guest, Nick McKenzie, the author of Crossing the Line, the story, the unbelievable story of Ben Robert Smith. And thank you to John and Lawrence, um, who have stood in admirably in the absence of Miss Jane. We'll be back again next week. 